nervous. Just kidding. Um, we're going to be in the book of Philippians. We're in the fourth chapter today. We're going to cover verses one through nine. So you can take out your Bible, but also maybe you're new and don't know about it. We have other ways you can track along with our teaching. We have a Calvary Chapel app you can download on your phone. It has all the notes I'll be using, all the points, all the verses. You can also access that on your tablet. So you really have three choices. Paper Bible, which I do like hearing those pages turn, by the way. Or I'm guilty of using my phone. I'll just fess up. So God won't condemn you for electronics, I promise. It is a communion weekend, though, so if you got communion as you came in, it's for believers. I'll explain more of that when we get there, but I would also encourage you, check your cup. I've heard of there's one or two, like the, the bread side, maybe it's what I call a dud. Make sure you got bread. It might have a couple, two or three is okay, but hopefully yours is not a zero. If it's a zero, you got time to fix it. Or maybe tap your buddy next to you on the shoulder that has three and borrow one. Okay, verse one. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. But even before that, I want to tell you a quick story because I'm not going to give you our title yet. Um, I'm going to give you our sort of our theme. Our theme today is God's peace and how to, what that is, what it looks like, how to have it, and specifically how to have God's peace when life is not making sense, when life is really difficult. And I like to use myself sometimes as an example, my wife and I, Donna, we have two children, two beautiful children. They're both adopted. And that's a whole story I don't have time to tell you. It'll be another weekend maybe. But when my son Derek was about two, Don and I started noticing, because both of us were nurses in our old life, we both still have a license, neither one of us uses it, but we kind of noticed he wasn't hitting some milestones for like hearing and speech. And so we got him tested. Sure enough, even at two years old, he needed hearing aids. By the way, good luck keeping a hearing aid on a two-year-old. Just imagine that. So, but friends of ours would kind of, they were worried, and they would ask us, aren't you really upset or really worried? You know, are you fearful? Like, how's that going to play out? And once again, it's not about us. We're not perfect people by any means. You can ask my wife. She'll tell you I'm not. But we kind of had peace about it because we had already learned by then. I mean, we didn't have kids, and God gave us two beautiful kids to adoption. Just to trust God, let him work it out, and give our fears and worries over. So we kind of had God's peace, and I guess people noticed, especially in my wife's case. And so today we're going to talk about how to have that kind of peace when what looks like life, there's no good answer. It's too difficult. It's hard. And God, I think, wants us to have his peace, and that's what we're going to be studying. So with all that, first verse. Philippians 4.1 says, therefore. i got to stop after one word. We might stop and start a lot today, by the way. Because when you see that word, therefore, it always refers back to something that already was said. I'm not going to reread it, but if you really look at chapter 3, which we covered last week, Paul was making the case that our citizenship, your citizenship, if we're believers, is in heaven. So he's saying, in other words, I could read this verse and say, since your citizenship is in heaven, then I can continue. My brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, all of you, my joy and my crown, now he's kind of praising them, then he gives them like a challenge. Stand firm in the Lord, in the Lord. That's the key. In this way, my dear friends. And what he's going to 
talk about going forward is in this way would be have God's peace even when things aren't making sense. As I read those verses, you can almost sense how much Paul loves the church. Just like the pastors here at Calvary, we love all of you. We care for you. But this crown, Paul called them his crown. Um, and the, the crown would be, by the way, it's not a king's crown. It's a Greek word called Stephanos, and it's the winner of an athletic competition. Now, earning crowns is not a competition in Scripture. It's more like a reward you get someday in heaven for doing God's work down here on earth. One of the primary ways you kind of would earn that, by the way, is helping somebody somehow, some way, find their way to Jesus. It may be sharing the gospel. It may be talking to them. But, but here's the thing you don't want to miss. Maybe it's something as simple, in our minds simple anyway, is inviting someone to church. Someone invited all of us at some point. If we invite other people, they're going to be sitting under God's word, learning about Jesus. You could very well get a crown someday. And if you think about the song we sang, I love it when sometimes the song matches the text because I didn't have any idea what they were going to sing today. One of those lines in those songs we sang was, we will cast our crowns at the feet of the Lord. The crown you're going to get that, that it's talking about is somehow we've helped somebody, some way, we've worked for the Lord, especially in the area of finding Christ. So keep inviting people to church. You're building up literally treasure in heaven with that. But the real key to that verse is stand firm in the Lord. In other words, not in my strength, not in your strength, in the strength of Jesus. Now I've got to read a couple of tongue-twisting names. Let's see if I get it right. I have had two times to practice by now between Saturday and 9 a.m. It says in verse 2, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sentucci. That's the hard one. To be of the same mind. Forget about the names and maybe how I might have mangled them. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Because here's what was going on. And we don't know all the details, but somehow, some way, these two ladies were sort of in dissension, conflict. They, were, they weren't getting along. Paul doesn't give us the details. What he is going to tell them, and really telling us in a way, if you're in that kind of a conflict with somebody, fix it. He, he's going to say, don't be in disunity. Why would that be? Why is he even addressing it in this letter to the, the Philippian church? Well, likely, most Bible scholars believe it was affecting the church itself. In other words, these two ladies in disagreement, it was spilling over to ministry. It was starting to affect the church itself. People could have been taking sides. We don't really know. Paul's going to tell the church, and really he's telling us because we are the church, be in unity. We'll talk about that all day. And one of the ways we'll do that is by having God's peace. And Scripture's full of verses about unity. I just pick one. Let's look at a verse out of 1 Peter. Here's what it says. All of you, that's me and all of us, all of you watching online even, be like-minded. In other words, think about Jesus. That's our unification. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate. Be humble. And there's, once again, a ton of verses I could have picked, but that unity is a common theme through Scripture. So verse 3, our next verse in our text today, Paul's going to ask even other people to kind of come alongside them and help. He says, if I read it, 
Yes, I ask you, my true companion, now we don't know who that is, by the way, this true companion is kind of the mystery man, help these women since they've contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. They were all working together faithfully doing ministry. Somehow these, these two ladies had gotten in disunity, and it's starting to affect even Paul's ministry. So he's asking this true companion, you come alongside him and encourage him and help. Then he's going to ask also, if I keep reading, along with Clement. We don't really know who Clement is either. There's other Clements in the Bible. It may be the same Clement. It may be a different one. Doesn't really matter. What matters is he's, helping, he's asking these two people, you help resolve this. If they can't fix it, maybe you kind of come alongside and, and encourage them to fix it alongside them. But look at the last verse of that sentence. It says, whose names, he's saying all of you, the two ladies, even though they're in disunity, plus this true companion, plus Clement, whose names are in the book of life. In other words, who's, who's been saved. That's what that really translates to. We want to have our name in that book of life. We'll talk more about that later in a few minutes. But I want to go back to the ladies for a second. These ladies were together. They were in unity. They were serving. But somehow it, it fell apart. And we're not really told what the deal is. It was just kind of them being sort of difficult people. And as I was preparing this message, um, Pastor Dave Fokers, the real Dave, um, he's, he's in Vieira today teaching. But he shared with me a statistic, and he thought I might want to add it to my sermon, and I did. But I'll give him the credit for showing it to me, because he is my boss. Um, here's what he showed me, though, and it's really kind of a heartbreaker in a way. This is a statistic for new pastors, new pastors coming out of seminary. In the first five years of a new pastor coming out of seminary, 80% of them quit. 80%. I heard a wow. I did the same thing. Wow, that's a big number. And they've kind of polled them and asked them, why? Why did you quit? You know, you went to school, you were trained, you loved this. They more or less said, and I'm paraphrasing, it was difficult people. I wasn't prepared for all the difficult people because they got all the training, the Bible scholar stuff. Maybe they were younger, they didn't have a lot of a worldly experience, other careers, difficult people. Well, I've been here now 10 years. I've been a pastor for 10 years. So I'm way past the five-year mark, and more than that, I'm not leaving. So now, on the other hand, by the end of today, by the end of today, maybe some of you wish I would, but I'll let you be the judge of that. But I started thinking, why didn't I leave? You know, why didn't, you know, because I can be messy too. Pastors are not exempt from this, by the way. We are sometimes the difficult people. So feel free to correct us if you see that in our lives. But I came up with two reasons why I didn't leave at the five-year mark. The first reason would be, you guys aren't messy. You're not difficult. Praise God. You hadn't bugged me into leaving. But my other reason might be, maybe you are difficult, and I'm just too dumb to see it. I don't know. Either way, I'm not leaving. That's, that's in my mind, the good news. But here's our real key, all joking aside. In Christ, we have way more in common than we do differences. Now, we're, all, we're not the same. We're all made unique and different and wonderful, as Scripture says. But we have Jesus as our common denominator. He unifies us, so we have to put our minor differences aside. If you're taking notes today, this will be the first thing you might want to write down. 
Team Jesus. And by the way, if you're saved, you're on, I call it Team Jesus. Team Jesus, praise the Lord, stay strong by being unified. Because look at what the enemy's goal is. The next sentence, Satan's goal is to divide us. And he will use anything and everything at his disposal, including minor disagreements like these ladies were having, because it's already affecting the church. When we let our disagreements affect ministry, Satan's just kind of like, yep, I caused that. (laughs) He's probably happy about that. Paul is challenging the ladies and us, don't let that happen. Be unified. But let's go back to the other end of that verse, the, the, the lines I said I would come back to, whose names are in the book of life. I would ask all of you today, is your name in the book of life? It, it is, I hope. If not, do not leave today without it being in God's book. Because the way we do that, by the way, if you never heard that term, it's by asking Jesus what we call here at Calvary like an altar call at the end. We want to just tell Jesus, I'm a sinner, help me. I want to make you and ask you to be my Lord and Savior today. Not just my Savior, Lord, in charge of my life. That's how we get our name in the book. And there's all kind of verses. Once again, I could have picked a lot. We're going to look at a verse out of Revelation first. Revelation 20, verse 15, here's what it says. It's kind of a sobering idea, by the way. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. God never designed it that way. The lake of fire, hell, as we would also call it, it was designed for Satan and his demons. But if our name is not in the book, we end up there with them. By the way, isn't that screen behind me kind of cool? What we call a split screen? We have an awesome camera group, technical group, and a secret room upstairs you've never seen. Yeah, let's give them a shout out. They're laboring tirelessly, likely in my mind anyway, earning crowns for heaven with their volunteer work because they're doing the Lord's work behind the scenes. And they wouldn't even, you wouldn't even know about it if I didn't sort of call them out on it. But if you see people wearing, usually like they usually wear black a lot because the camera wants to kind of you know, hide, tell them thank you. They're making the notes beside me today happen, especially in that secret room up there. Maybe you want to serve there. If you want to serve in the secret room, come find me, and I'll tell you how to do that, by the way. See? I can turn anything into a plug for more volunteers. Let's look at another verse, Daniel. Daniel, this is in the Old Testament, but it's really prophetic words about end times. Same idea, book of life. Daniel 12, 1, here's what it says. You can see it, but I'm going to read it. At that time... Michael, the archangel who stands guard over your nation, nation of Israel, who we prayed for, by the way, will arise. Then there will be a time of anguish greater than any time since nations first came into existence. Even worse than our curled word events. It's end times. But, here's the escape clause. At that time, every one of your people, all of you, me, people watching online, if your name is in the book of life, you'll be rescued. But we have to commit to following Jesus. And that is the one sad thing as I pray for Israel and watch the news lately. You know, we all know not all of Israel believes in Jesus. Most of them don't, to be honest. They think he's a great prophet, a good man, but they don't believe he's the Messiah. What did Jesus tell us? There's one way to get your name in in God's book. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one 
Jew or Gentile, no one comes to the Father except through me. So we want to share the gospel. And in times, God will give a way for the Jews to be reconciled, but they'll have to do it like we did. Everybody has to put their faith and hope and trust in the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord, Savior, and Messiah. But back to our story. Paul is not going to take a side. He's sort of the, the advisor, the leader of this church in Philippi. He's going to challenge the two ladies, work it out yourselves. You two talk about it. Figure it out. You're both believers. You have Jesus to unify you. Work it out. Be of one mind. And he kind of calls them out to be reconciled. Let me explain the difference, though, because there's a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. They sometimes go together, but they're all really separate in a way. Here's why. To be reconciled, like Paul's challenging these ladies, means Fix it where you're best, not best friends, but on, on good terms. You're friends again. Whatever this dissension or disagreement was, when you're reconciled, that's been put behind you. You're able to work together. That's reconciliation. Forgiveness is different. It sometimes can be a step in reconciliation, but it also can be a standalone separate thing, and here's why. In a room of this size and also watching online, I'm sure there's people in this room who have been treated terribly wrong, you've been hurt, maybe even abused, physically, sexually, emotionally. That person did terrible things, whoever that was. When you forgive them, you're not saying that's okay. You're not condoning their behavior. What you're doing, though, you're making the choice based on God's word to say, I am going to let that go. I'm going to let that go. And I don't have time to explain it. I taught on that a couple years ago here. But forgiveness basically is like a poison. It's not hurting the person I won't forgive at all because they could likely care less. It's hurting me and you if we have it in us. So forgiveness is more a decision. You choose to forgive, not that you condone, and then you, you just move on. You may never meet with that person one-on-one. They may have even passed away sometimes. It's more of a decision, I'm going to forgive for my own good, where reconciliation is more working together as, as a team again. That's the difference. But scripture is really strong on that. There's a verse in Matthew 5, I'm going to paraphrase. It says, if you come to church and you're going to present your offering to the Lord, whether that be tithes, worship, however your offering looks, it says, but if you remember you have unforgiveness, it says, leave your offering, go reconcile it and make amends, fix it, and then come back and present your offering. God does not want us to have unforgiveness because it really messes up our prayers, and we're going to see that in a second. I'll put a list on the screen of what I called prayer blockers. In other words, what hinders our prayers? Here's a list. We have to realize where this division is coming from. It's a tool of the enemy. He's trying to divide us and get us to be on different pages, and then that way ministry starts messing up, like in Paul's case. But here's something else. We're not supposed to be robots. We fight for unity, not uniformity. There's a big difference. We can all be wonderfully unique. We're all different people. If you ask my friends, I'm sure they'll tell you I'm kind of different. I'm different than the other two days, by the way, if you haven't figured that out yet. But it's okay. God made us different. He loves differences. But we all need to be in unity because we're on Team Jesus. Next, there's a process that pastors will kind of throw out there real quick, and they'll say, have you done the Matthew? If, if you come to one of us and say, we're, we're having this little disagreement, one of our questions likely would be, have you done the Matthew 18 process? 
And what that would look like, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but basically if, if one of us has disunity with me, and maybe I've offended somebody, I don't know it, please come to me, I'd love to apologize and fix that. But we'll just say theoretically that's how it's working. I'm in disagreement or you are. We're supposed to go to that person one-on-one, the two of us meet, and talk about it, try to fix it. Hopefully we can resolve it right there, the two of us. But Matthew 18 has a step two that if it can't be resolved by the two of you, you bring in a third party, what I would call more like a mediator or a neutral observer. In other words, like Paul, they're not taking sides. They're going to hear the whole thing out and try to discern what is this disunity from. Well, we'll just say that it still can't be fixed. Nothing, it's, it's getting better, but it's still not fixed. That's when in Matthew 18 it goes to church leadership, which in our case here at Calvary, by the way, would be the elders. The pastors don't do church discipline. The elders do. So it's step one is the two, of the, the two people. Step two would be a third party comes in. Step three, if nobody can fix it, it goes to the elders, and they, they once again would be neutral. They're just going to hear out the details and make a kind of elder decision and then sort of tell the people, this is what we see. One of you maybe needs to let it go, move on, whatever the case would be. So that's what Matthew 18 would be. But look at the last one. Really the second to last one, I guess. I can't count today. Don't involve anyone that can't help. In other words, to bring in that third party is fine. I don't need to tell every friend I have about it. And, you know, we're sinners. We're people. We're, we're tempted to say, can you believe what they did? Can you believe what they said to me? Is that not wrong? We want to kind of campaign for our side in some ways. We can't do that. We have to follow that Matthew 18 process. And then finally, the biggest one, unforgiveness. I just talked about that while I go. If I have unforgiveness, it will block my prayers. And I can have that sometime by that last one on the screen if my facts are my opinions. Because what I call a fact might really be Dave's opinion. We all have opinions, and sometimes they're not valid. So that's why we bring these sort of neutral parties in to kind of help us resolve this. Back to our text, verse 4. If we start praying and doing the right thing, look what our result would be. We'll rejoice. Verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Even, it's not there, but it's, I think, inferred. Even when times are tough. Rejoice in the Lord. And then Paul says, I'm going to say it It's so important, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. But rejoicing already made the case that forgiveness is a choice. To rejoice is a choice also. Because we may not feel like it. You know, when life is tough, when everything's messed up around us, our finances are going down the tubes, gas keeps going up, everything looks terrible, it's hard to rejoice. We do that by having the peace of the Lord in us. That's why Paul is calling it. And one way you do that, by the way, what did we do before the message started? We did worship. Our worship is a way of kind of clearing our mind, getting it focused back on God, where it belongs. No matter what we've brought to the table when we got here, worship kind of resets our mind to rejoice, even when it doesn't make sense. And Paul tells the church in Philippi, by the way, over 17 times in these chapters, he says, be joyful, be joyful. And if you look at the history of the church in Philippi, they were under persecution, they were being attacked. He's telling them to rejoice and be joyful no matter the circumstances. The next verse, verse 5 says, Let your gentleness 
be evident to all. The Lord is near. Be gentle because Jesus is on the way. And, and we've read that in Scripture our whole lives. Paul was saying it. But here's the thing that the Scripture tells us. We don't know when that day would be. Be gentle because it might be in five more minutes is kind of the idea here. We have to be ready no matter when, 24-7, that if Jesus appeared literally right this minute, we would be okay to go with him, that he would see us as kind, gentle, peaceful people like he was because he's coming near. And the world is usually not like that, by the way. Think what we were before we were Christians. We were probably harsh and judgmental, not so gentle at all. That's what we don't want to be is like our old life. Jesus is our best example of this, by the way. He's always our role model, isn't he? Think of the woman caught in adultery. And by the way, that story should be the woman and the man caught in adultery because it takes two, by the way. But they brought the woman to Jesus. They wanted to remember Stoner. What did Jesus do? He didn't come out harshly. He didn't yell at her, convict her. He did point out some of her sin at the end. But he kind of redirected it back to the people trying to kill her and said, the first of you that has no sin, throw the first rock. What they all do? Drop their stones and disappeared. And he, at the end, says, we're your accusers, woman. They, they weren't any. That's when he gently, he gently, though, corrects her and to do better. Doesn't matter what you did, do better from this moment forward. That's what being gentle looks like. Galatians chapter 6 has some verses that say if one of us in the church, because there's a difference between the believers and unbelievers, if one of us stumbles and falls, restore them gently, not harshly and meanly and full of, you know, the holy hammer. Our next verse, verse 6. This is a great one, by the way, for all of us. Do not be anxious about what? Anything. Everything. You could also see that. But in every situation, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So in that verse, Paul is telling us sort of what not to do. In other words, don't be anxious. Don't worry. Then he tells us what to do, what to replace it with. He says replace it with prayer and petition. And by the way, these verses, this verse is a command. It's not a suggestion. He's telling us, don't be anxious. It's a command. Pray and petition the Lord instead. And here's the kind of key idea about that. Because we all have trials. In this room, once again, many of you are probably in a trial right now that I don't know about. God will use that trial to strengthen our trust and our faith in him. He can use it, which is, if you're taking notes, the second thing you might want to write down. If we have these anxious worries, use your worry and let it guide you. Use it to almost give a specific request to God. Let it guide you to a thankful, specific prayer. In other words, instead of worrying about that thing, use that as a specific prayer and ask God to help. Because worry and anxiety both, they really, they're tools of Satan to steal our joy. It's hard to be joyful when you're worried and anxious. They steal our joy, they decrease our faith. And really, both of them, if you look at them, they're what I would call the early stages of fear. Worry, anxiety ends up at fear. Fear is more like over here, and we'll say faith is over here. They're almost polar opposites. Satan wants us to be fearful and to wreck our faith. 
He gets us to, because most of the time we would not, I'm not fearful. I don't choose to be fearful. He's, he's pretty devious. He gets us there with worry and anxiety. Then before we know it, we wake up and like, oh my gosh, I'm fearful. How did this happen? It started with me overthinking things, over worrying, over anxious about everything. God will help us fix that though. But let's kind of define worry. What does worry really look like? I'm overthinking everything and always coming up with the worst case scenario. You ever had a friend like that? That's always like worst case scenario, no matter what's happening? We don't want to be that kind of friend, do we? Because what will happen, if you look around and you're that person, you'll have less and less friends as time goes by. Nobody wants to be close friends with a gloom and doom, everything is worst case, because it doesn't really line up with God's promises. God says, have peace, have faith, even when things look terrible. And then he says, be joyful, pray in thanksgiving. There's verses in James that say, James challenges even a step further. He says, be thankful in your trial because in a way you're connecting with the the persecution of Jesus. He says, kind of like the more trials we have, the more like we're Jesus we are. Don't pray for more trials, by the way, but don't let them discourage you. You're, You're suffering in some small ways like the Lord. But let's talk about prayer. It was Thanksgiving prayer, worry. Now we're down to prayer. Prayer is just a conversation with the Lord. It's talking to God. Doesn't have to be a giant, long, wordy, ornate prayer. Back in the day before, you know, nowadays everybody has these little pods in their ear and they can talk on the phone and have conversations. You see them walking around town and wonder what they're doing. They're talking to somebody. Well, imagine before that, before those things came out, I would be in my car driving and just sort of talk to God sometime and not a formal prayer, more like just telling God, God, you're so great. I love you. Thank you for protecting me today. If I was on 95, I might say thank you for not allowing somebody to T-bone me. But I would just be talking out loud, and people would look over at me and kind of like, what is that guy doing? What is he talking to? Nowadays, because of these little doodads, everybody does it, so it doesn't look like a sore thumb anymore. But my point is, just talk to God like you're talking on the phone. It's not a formal, scripted thing. We'll cover that in a second. But let's move on to petition. What is a petition? That's a specific request. Prayer is more a conversation. A petition is when you ask God to do or act in a certain area of your life. It's okay to ask because James also tells us, you know, you have not because you ask not. But we can have, as we had this conversation with God, there's some things that I like to call prayer blockers. In other words, they inhibit our prayers. They, They slow them down and maybe even stop them. Let's look at a few. And I put some verses. You can read these later. You can take a picture. You can go online Read them at will, um, but the the kind of the summary idea is out beside the verse. Hidden sin, but let me explain that one first. That is not that we made a mistake this week. That is not that we messed up, because we all messed up, didn't we, this week? We all do things that are really a sin. Maybe we got angry. These verses are talking about a willful, disobedient lifestyle. In other words, I'm willfully leading a double life because I think it's a secret sin. Well, Scripture also says every secret sin will be revealed, it'll all come to light, and it'll be worse for you if you reveal it later than it would be if you just confess and repent like God wants you to. But it literally will make God, if I'm living that kind of lifestyle, this disobedient life, God will hide his face from me. 
If I pray, he's not going to listen. That next verse says that. Another big blocker is pride. We get a little full of ourselves. Pastors have a real danger of that one, by the way, because I'm up here today talking to all of you. I could let that go to my head if I wasn't careful. And if you see that in me, please correct me, by the way. My wife will probably beat you to it, but, you know, you can be level two. Think about those verses on the screen. Pharisee and tax collector prayed. One was prideful. One was not. One was humble. And God says the Pharisee, because he was prideful, got his reward right then, right there. People heard his long, wordy, elaborate prayer. God really listened to the sinner, the tax collector. So pride is a danger. Let's move on a few more. Bad motives. I have to make sure my requests, whether it's a prayer, a conversation, or a supplication, the example of that would be, God's probably not going to listen if I go home and pray for a big screen TV. Does that line up with God's will? No, that's my will. Now, my wife might listen if I ask her to help us get one, but God doesn't care if I have a big screen or not. He cares more about things that would somehow expand his kingdom, further the expansion of the gospel. It can't be for my own selfish gain or yours. Meaningless repetition. That would be praying the same thing over and over all the time. Now, there is one exception, by the way, the Lord's Prayer. That one's okay to repeat. Jesus gave us that as an example of a, you know, kind of a sample prayer. So we can repeat that one anytime we want, but the idea would be that shouldn't be our only prayer. Think of prayer as like your toolbox. You don't want just one tool in your toolbox. That would be the Lord's Prayer. Think of it more of a conversation because there's other verses that say if we just keep repeating the same thing every time we pray, God calls us like, he says, you're babbling like the pagans. You know, who wants a T-shirt today that says, Babbling Pagan? Not me. I hope you don't either. We want the shirt that says, Team Jesus. If you go to men's R&R, you might get one. Next couple of points. Doubt. We don't believe, really. I mean, we kind of hope. But we don't really believe God would answer our little trivial request. God wants us to believe and have faith that he will do that. Now, God doesn't answer every prayer. We know that. But we have to have faith that he's going to. Then let him decide which one he acts on because he's smarter than us. He will work it out for our benefit and his glory. But we have to have faith that he's going to do what we're asking. No fear. Trust him. The last one's the big one, though. I've hit unforgiveness twice now. This makes number three. That is probably one of the biggest prayer blockers for believers for the church, Christians, because we're saved. Our name is in the book. If it's not, we can fix that at the end of the day, by the way. But I somehow have this old history, and I'm bitter, I'm angry, I have unforgiveness in my heart about something, maybe a person, even in the church, maybe outside the church, doesn't matter. If I have unforgiveness, God is not pleased with that, and it literally says he, he may not listen to my prayers. He wants me to fix that, First. Otherwise, why would it say the verse I paraphrase, leave your offering, go fix that, come back and then give your offering to me? Unforgiveness, once again, and I'll get off my soapbox, is probably the biggest prayer brokers Christians have. It comes up all the time in counseling here at the church. So be careful we don't have that. And here's why. Let's read our next verse. I'm down to verse 7 if you're not counting. Verse 7 says, look at the end result. If we get all these kind of blockers fixed, 
The peace of God, that's our theme today, remember, which transcends all understanding. In other words, you'll have the peace of God when nothing makes sense. While you really rationally shouldn't have peace, you will, and it will guard your mind and your heart in Christ Jesus. God's peace will guard our minds and our hearts. Now, that word, I'm not going to read it to you because it's Greek and, you know, who really cares? It means guard like a military term, protect. Think of it more like it will protect us. God's peace will protect our minds and our hearts because we need protection from the enemy. It protects our heart, which really kind of plays into our emotions. It also protects our mind, which is our thoughts. Because really, if you think about it, it's a progression. To guard first, we have to guard our thoughts. We guard our thoughts because if we're not careful, our thoughts will spill over into our emotions. I think we have a graphic on the screen to show that. It's thoughts, emotions, actions. It will spill over. It starts in our mind, though. We have to guard our minds so it doesn't cause our emotions to kick in because our emotions can run wild. Remember, we're imperfect people. We don't want our emotions driving our actions. That's the last step, and that's the worst. Do not let our thoughts, emotions lead to bad actions because, yes, we can apologize. Yes, we can fix it. But it's much better if we catch it in the early stages where it's still a thought. Stop it at the early stage. We need God's peace to be able to do that, though. That's what Scripture says. Because here's our next point if we're taking notes. God's peace, that sometimes makes no sense, by the way, to have, will protect our heart and our mind from being like the world's. Think how we were before we found Jesus. We didn't behave very well, did we? I know I didn't. Once again, ask my wife. God's peace, though, will come upon us and give us peace when everything is going bad. Illness, death, medical problems, financial problems, relational problems. God's peace will cover all that, even when the world around us says, I don't know how you're doing that, because I would be furious and upset and angry and dejected. We're tempted to by the enemy, but because we have God's peace that's promised in these verses, and verse 7 is a promise, by the way, that's how we deal with difficult times. Because Scripture doesn't tell us, you can't flip to a page in here and, and get a roadmap to how to have peace. It doesn't say, turn to page 78, pray this and this, and then you'll have peace. God wants us to have faith and just believe that his word promises it, and then he says he'll give it to us. It's a promise. And if he answered every prayer we ever gave him, by the way, we would just be spoiled and titled brats. That's why he doesn't answer everything. But the real promise goes back to our name is in his book of life. That's the ultimate promise. And no matter how bad and messy this life gets, we know where we're going someday. Because our prayers, the, the prayers we're now have unblocked by these blockers, if we will pray and not have those things hindering us, our prayers will deepen and develop and mature our faith. We'll learn to trust God more by our past experience. Think back to how God came through for you guys in some way in the past. Next time you're in a trial and a struggle, you say, oh yeah, this makes no sense, but God did this, so I can extrapolate that. He's going to come through somehow that I can't even imagine, but he's going to do it. That's the kind of faith God wants us to have. 
But just so we're clear, there's really two types of peace. There's peace with God. That's really not the one I'm talking about today, but I do want to touch on it. Peace with God comes at salvation. Because Scripture tells us that we're separated from God is holy. Sinful humanity is over here. There's a great chasm. You'll see it drawn sometimes as an illustration. God cannot be near sin. We're sinners. Jesus had to close that gap by the cross where we can have peace with God. But that only comes, once again, at salvation. We'll give you a chance to do that at the end of the service if you have never made that kind of profession. But the peace we're talking about more today is the peace of God. The peace of God is a fruit of the Holy Spirit that comes after God comes to live inside us. It's his peace. It's a gift. Okay, finally we're to the title. I've been holding the title out on you. Maybe you've seen it written, but it's going to be on the screen. And I call it, and I'm not a math expert, by the way, I call this God's math. That's just my version. And if you're an engineer, maybe you're going to argue with me, say, no, no, that's a terrible math formula. Probably is because I don't like math. But let me explain it. We trust God based on what he's done before sometimes, what he's going to do. We have faith in God. So you take our trust and our faith, and by the way, parentheses means multiply. So we multiply those two things, but we also times them, multiply again by prayer. And it's not just prayer. There's like a little numerator, I think it's called, by the way. Don't hold me to that. I'm not a math guy. The little two. Let's just call it the little two. That's prayer squared. Good. I heard some. See, I'm not on the wrong track. I heard a squared. Probably an engineer in the audience helping me out. Prayer squared means prayer times it. Any, any number squared is a number time itself. So think of it as prayer times prayer. So now trust and faith added and multiplied. Now multiplied by the square root of prayer. What do we get? God's peace. It's probably not a square root either. That's my math, but I call it God's math. That's how we have it. But don't miss the fact prayer is the key. But I'm going to give you a practical way to pray too, by the way. Um, another shameless plug for Calvary Chapel. But it's for your good. It's for your good. Here's why. A lot of you probably don't know about it, but on our webpage, it's also on our app if you have our app on your phone, there's a section called the Prayer Wall. On the website, if you go on our web, calvaryccm.com, there's a list of tabs across the top. One of those tabs is called Connect. If you click on Connect, you'll get a bunch of drop-downs. One of those drop-downs is Prayer Wall. It's for all of you, the congregation, to put your prayer request on that wall. Here's what's cool about it. Other people will pray those prayers for you. So now you're praying. Yeah, that's a woo. That's a woo moment, I would say. You're praying, but also other people are praying for you about the same thing. The more prayers, the better, correct? So use, it's on the app too. On the app, there's, I think, four little lines like a menu. You've got to scroll further down, but it is on the app also. So use the app. Use the prayer wall. I hope all of you go home and load that prayer wall up so much that people can't hardly pray them all. Because we will get to them, I promise. It's for your benefit, more prayers to God's ears. Because more prayer is really how we have God's peace, which brings up our last main point if you're taking notes. We increase our peace, because peace is hard to have. God has to give it to us. We increase our peace by increasing our prayers. 
And the prayers of others will also help that happen. So more prayer, more peace. Don't miss that. Last couple of verses, verse 8. Paul says, finally, because he's getting ready to kind of end this train of thought here about God's peace. He says, brothers and sisters, all of you, all of us, me included, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Here Paul is telling us, earlier we learned about, he said, don't have anxious thoughts, don't be worried. He's telling us in this verse, replace your anxiety and your worry with these things. Think about them. In, in some ways, he's even saying meditate. Think about them a lot. Let me just go back and read those kind of good things to think about quickly all together. Think about this. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about that instead of all these gloom and doom, worst-case scenarios. Don't be chicken little, in other words. We got to have God's peace. It's almost a requirement because if we do, there's some benefits that come with it. Here's, here's the first benefit in a way. The peace of God will come on us, like over us, and we'll have peace when it makes no sense. That's on us. But possibly even better, God's peace will come in us. And the way I would make the case that one's better, if it's in us, it's portable. It goes with us wherever. It's not just for this room. When you're on 95 and somebody's about to run you off the road because they're texting, it'll be in you, and you can have peace even in scary situations, in peace when things make no sense, in things when life doesn't make sense. But you have to have Jesus. So we're going to kind of move toward. Now, we have communion left to go. Don't get excited. We're not leaving early. But we need to kind of give people a chance to put their faith in trust in Jesus so that their name, maybe some of your names, gets written today in God's book of life. Because we already learned, if your name's not in the book, you're not going home. You could possibly go to that lake of fire, which is the last place you'd ever want to be, because that is all of eternity. Eternal paradise, eternal punishment. It's kind of like a no-brainer, isn't it? But you do that by saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you. We usually give that kind of opportunity weekly here at Calvary. So in a minute, we're going to bow our heads, but let me explain what we're going to do. If you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, and not just Savior, Lord, in charge of your life, you're going to make a commitment, Jesus, I'm a sinner, I need you. We're going to do that. But maybe you're also here, and you made that prayer, but maybe you were too young, you didn't understand it. I did that myself. Jesus says, do it again when it, you understand it. He'll honor that. You can't overpray the prayer. You definitely can sort of not pray it enough and leave it on the table. But the third category, maybe you've just been wandering and doing your own thing. You're saved. Your name is in the book. But you just want to rededicate your life today to say, I want to be on Team Jesus and follow him like I'm supposed to. So we're going to bow our heads. If you want to pray that prayer, I'm going to lead us in it. Just raise your hand. Nobody's going to know. Everybody's heads are bowed. I'll look around, I'll see the balcony, I'll see some hands already. If you want to pray that prayer to dedicate your life, either for the first time, the second time, however many times, back to the Lord, you have to take that step or you'll never have God's peace. 
That's step one, is just committing to be a believer, not just a mouth commitment, a command to follow. That's what Jesus requires. So let's just pray that prayer, and we're going to pray something like this. It's not the magic words. It's just about the intent in your own heart. And you can do this quietly in your seat under your breath. Lord, I believe you died for me in my sins, that you were on the cross for me, and then you were buried and resurrected the third day, once again, for me. Today, Jesus, I proclaim you as my personal Lord and Savior, and I just want to follow you the rest of my days. I need your help. Lord, today, help me follow you better. Help me be a complete follower of Jesus Christ until the day I die. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It's as simple as that. At this time, we're going to stand for our last song. You can stand up. We're going to sing that song, Worthy of It All. Think about Jesus is the only one worthy because in a few minutes, we're coming back to take communion. Let's sing all the saints and angels. All the saints and angels, they bow before Okay, you can all be seated. We're going to go just a couple of minutes over for a reason. We don't usually have the time to really go into depth about communion, but today I'm going to just for a few minutes. And here's why. I believe when Jesus did that Passover ceremony with his disciples, he said, and I'll read you a verse in Luke 22, he said, I eagerly desire to take this Passover with you. What I really think he meant in my mind, and you can decide on your own, he was going to change Passover, Old Testament, that the Jews celebrated into New Testament communion. In other words, a newer, different, better way for us. And if you go back to Exodus, where the Passover requirements are listed, it says, do this ceremony as a lasting ordinance. In other words, for generation to generation. Well, we're not Jewish believers. There might be a few in here, but most of us are Gentiles. So we don't practice Passover. But Jesus gave us a way, in my mind, and I'll explain why in a second, to do that. In other words, Passover foreshadowed what we're about to do in a few seconds. We all know the story of Passover. The Israelites were coming out of Egypt, and Pharaoh wouldn't let them go, so God sent one final plague to wipe out the firstborn. And he gave Israel a way to protect themselves by killing a lamb, putting the lamb's blood on the doorpost, 
that allowed the angel of death to pass over and they were protected. We have that same component today, and you'll see that in a second. But what we don't know about that story, here's what sort of like, on Wednesday night I teach a lot, I give some of the backstory, connect the dots. Here's our connect the dots moments for that whole Passover lamb. We probably see it, or at least I know I do. They went outside, they got the lamb, they killed him, they put the blood on. But they would do this every year. But here's what you probably don't know. They were required to go get that lamb on the 10th day of the first month. And it lived in their house, in their house, for the next four days. Think if you had a cute little fluffy baby lamb at your house, what would happen? You would love that lamb. You would cherish that lamb. Your kids would probably think it's their pet. So when you had to kill that lamb on the fifth day, that would be a heartbreaker, wouldn't it? It would be like literally killing your own family. That's what we did to Jesus. We killed our own family. He came to earth and put on skin, as we call it sometime, walked as a man. He is our family. It, it's very serious. It's a heartbreaker when you think of it like the four-day lamb at your house. In other words, God wanted that moment to be cherished, celebrated, remembered, like you lost a family member. It was a continual remembrance, too, because here's the other thing we kind of miss sometimes. We almost see that, that Passover, because it was the Exodus, as a one-time event. The Jews celebrated Passover every year, and they would kill that four-day lamb every year and put that blood on their doorway over and over and over. It would likely, in my mind anyway, soak in and be very obvious, wouldn't it? So now, think about your doorway at your house. How many times do you pass by your own door? Going in, going out. Ten times a day? What would they do every time they passed that doorway? You couldn't help it. You would glance up. There's the blood. That's the blood that saved us. When we take communion, we don't want it to be just this five minutes. We want it to be a continual remembrance of Jesus' blood that should have been mine, should have been yours. We only do it here at Calvary once a month, but we can remember it anytime we choose. Think about the price Jesus paid. We're gonna, I'm going to read the communion verses. They'll be on the screen too. I'll read them quickly. Here's the communion verses we like to use. 1 Corinthians. It said, Jesus gave thanks, and when he, he broke the bread, and here's what he said. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance. And I would make the case continual remembrance like they did for what I did. In the same way, after, cup, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant. That's why I believe he changed Old Testament Passover into a New Testament way of kind of doing the same thing, which we would call communion. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's stand and take our elements. You can open them carefully. I'll keep talking. On one end, if you're new here, there's bread on one end. Sometimes you might have two, by the way. Hopefully you don't have a zero. If you have a zero, tap your friend next to you. Some of these are doubles. I think mine's a double right now. But this is, by the way, unleavened bread. Let me tie it back to the Old Testament Passover. It was unleavened because there was no yeast. Yeast in Scripture always represents sin. There was no time in the Exodus to let the bread rise, so they left hurriedly after the angel of death passed them by. This is our way to commemorate that. No yeast is in this. That's why it's flat. Tastes kind of funny maybe to some of you. Think of it as sinless bread. 
but it's a representation of Jesus' sinless body. He is the true bread of life. He told us that without sin. So let's take this little piece of bread in remembrance of Jesus' broken body, sinless, broken for us. You can flip your cup, open it carefully. Don't spill it on your shirt. It may not come out. This is grape juice. This is symbolic. It's not Jesus' actual bread and body and blood. It's symbolic of this new covenant he referenced. And by the, old, by the way, the old covenant, God said, I will be your God, you'll be my people. Jesus' death on the cross proclaimed that same new covenant, but in a different way. His broken body, his shed blood. Because scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. The Old Testament way, by the way, was Jesus, it predates Jesus, but it was kind of a foreshadow. They put a lamb's blood on the wooden doorpost. Our lamb's blood, Jesus, went on a wooden cross for us. So as we take the cup, remember his blood that paid for my sin, your sin. Let's take the cup together. Last thought, then I'll pray and dismiss this. We also have a better way. That's why I think he meant I'm changing it for your, your benefit. It, it's kind of our way in my mind of celebrating the Old Testament of Passover. We do it in communion. But they got protected from death for one night, the Old Testament Jewish nation. Our lamb's death protects us eternally, not one night, forever, to have our name in God's book of life. That's what's better. Isn't that a better way? That's why he called it the new covenant, a better covenant. But I'm going to just pray to dismiss this. Um, but before I do, we'll have some prayer partners down front. If you need prayer, or maybe you prayed that prayer of salvation, come talk to me. Come talk to one of our prayer partners. They love to pray for you for healing, anxiety, worries, anything. We also have an information circle we call the Connect Ring out in the commons. If you need more information, maybe you're new to the church, go out there to the center ring. That's our connection ring to get more information. But let me pray for God's peace for all of us as we leave. Lord, today we studied your peace kind of in depth, and we just are so thankful that you give us your peace in times of worry and anxiety and trouble. Father, I just pray for all of us, myself included, give us more of your peace. Help us be at peace when the world is crashing around us. Give us your peace, Lord, when nothing makes sense. We love you. And we have your peace because of your work on the cross that we just celebrate with communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you leave, one last slide. Thank you for your giving. If you're new here, we have boxes across the back. You can give your tithe and offering online. Thank you for being here. Hope to see you next week. Have a great day and God bless.